Syria's violence spills across borders again today, Monday, May 13th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Twin car bombs in a Turkish town over the weekend. Turkey blames Syria's government, but on the ground in Turkey, it's Syrian refugees who are taking the heat. We spoke to Syrians today who haven't left their houses for the last two days. Their cars have been smashed up because they carry Syrian plates. We'll also hear from Egypt, where many Syrian refugees have fled. And later on the program, what it's really like to live on the International Space Station. Uh, in, in space, you sponge bathe, and uh, sponge baths are not satisfying. Plus, how to escape from the mouth of a hippopotamus, as told by someone who's been there. All the while, I figured out that if I held on to the tusks that were boring into me, that my flesh wouldn't tear so much when he shook me about. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama discussed Syria today with visiting British Prime Minister David Cameron. The two leaders are looking for a way to negotiate an end to Syria's civil war, perhaps with Russia's help. And as Obama made clear at a joint press conference, that would include forcing out Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. If, in fact, uh, we can broker a peaceful political transition that leads to Assad's departure... But a state in Syria that is still intact, that accommodates the interests of all the ethnic groups, all the uh, religious groups inside of Syria, uh, and that ends the bloodshed, stabilizes the situation. That's not just going to be good for us. That'll be good for everybody. But Obama cautioned that enormous challenges remain. One of them is the seemingly endless bloodshed in Syria and sometimes in neighboring countries. Over the weekend, two car bombs went off in the Turkish border town of Rehanla, where thousands of Syrian refugees have settled. Forty-six people were killed. The BBC's Wera Davis visited Rehanla after the blast. He says the heart of this market town has been ripped out. Dozens of buildings were destroyed. The human cost is huge. The financial cost of the town is also massive. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of destroyed businesses. People have been cleaning up or trying to clean up the mess for the last two days. But, but as I say, the heart has really been ripped out of the town. These were massive car bombs. And how big a town is Rehanli? It's about 30,000 local Turks. But, of course, what's happened over the last couple of years is that the number of Syrian refugees has really increased the size of towns, not just Rehanli itself, but other neighbouring towns. What's happened here is that a lot of people, yes, they've gone into refugee camps, but many, many more Syrians have gone to live in towns, especially those with a bit of money and jobs. So about 25,000 Syrians have now almost doubled the size of the town of Rahandla. And that is a cause of tension in itself. Before the bombings, the Syrians were accepted in, in the community, especially those that brought money and could work. But ironically, in the last couple of days since the bombings, that has changed completely. We spoke to Syrians today who haven't left their houses for the last two days. Their cars have been smashed up because they carry Syrian plates. And even though many of the Turks in town clearly sympathize with their plight inside Syria, they're angry because they say it's the influx of Syrian refugees 
to their town that has made their town a target for car bombings. Well, I mean, as for blame, some fingers have been pointed at Assad's secret service in Damascus. They deny it. Why would they be suspected? A, this is their modus operandi. It's Syrian agents in Lebanon in particular are known to favor big car bombs like this. It's a way the regime sadly has taken out its opponents over the years. I think the Turks believe they have evidence that Syrian agents inside Turkey, probably Turkish nationals, are responsible for the bombing. They say they've arrested nine people. I don't think many people doubt that this was the work of the Assad regime. It has clearly had a destabilizing effect within Turkey. If that was the intention, it has certainly worked. Wira, can you just sum up for us what is Turkey's relationship to the war in Syria at this point? Turkey, of course, and Syria were once very close allies. But Turkey, I think, when they saw the level of atrocities, when they saw the way that the Assad regime was in a very brutal manner dealing with the uprising that began over two years ago now, the Turks felt that they simply couldn't stand by. And Turkey has taken a position which is incredibly critical of the Assad regime. It has been housing political and military opponents of the regime. But people are asking, what is Turkey going to do next? And I simply don't have the answer. There's very little appetite in Turkey, even amongst government supporters, to intervene formally, militarily against the Assad regime, because that would lead to a big regional war. But I don't think Turkey is either going to withdraw its political and logistical support for the opponents of the regime. So that's the big issue. What does Turkey do now? And I'm not sure that the Turkish government has got the answer right now. The BBC's Mideast correspondent, Wira Davis, thanks very much. Thank you. Egypt's another place where Syrians have gone to get away from the war. One neighborhood in Cairo is so packed with Syrian refugees that Egyptians call it Little Syria. Reporter Julia Simon recently spent the afternoon at a Syrian restaurant there, speaking with Syrian staff and their Syrian customers. When you walk into the El Shami restaurant, the first people you encounter are the 24-year-olds. There's Sameh, manning the cashier and arranging the deliveries. And Ahmed, sharpening his knife and cutting slabs of lamb shawarma onto sandwiches. In the back, you find the teenagers. Jihad shreds some cucumbers. And a pair of identical twins with big gray eyes packs up the food. The young employees of El Shami are all Syrians, who landed in Egypt in the past year. Ahmed explains many of them work together at the same restaurant in Damascus. It's not open anymore, Ahmed says. It closed. We needed work, we needed money, so we came here, to Egypt. Samus' uncle opened this restaurant seven months ago. Most of the customers are also Syrian refugees. It's about three and the late lunch crowd is coming in. A short red-headed Syrian guy orders a chicken shawarma. Then a man with a long white gown, a long black beard, and a white cap walks in. He's a sheikh. He came to Egypt from Damascus six months ago. I ask him how he likes it here. Of course, I love Egypt, he says. It's the land of blessings. It's the land of the prophet Moses. Then he proceeds to give me the Quranic history of Egypt and Syria. When the sheikh leaves, Ahmed and Sameh begin to tease me for letting the sheikh go on so long about Islamic history. Seriously, though, Sama says, some people talk like that guy, as if everything's perfect here, as if Egypt is so great. It's just not. 
Ahmed points at a middle-aged man who just walked in. He's from the city of Daraya, outside Damascus, Ahmed says. The man is tall, handsome, with green eyes. He moves gracefully yet slowly. He seems distracted. I ask him what he's ordering. Chicken and rice, he says, the food of the people. The tall man won't give me his name, but says I can refer to him as Tamim. He's a civil engineer. He came to Cairo seven months ago with his wife and three daughters. When he arrived in Egypt, he didn't know anyone here. I've seen a lot, he says. I was in the first massacre in Daraya in August, after Ramadan. Hundreds were killed in Daraya. In one day, I've seen so much death. Children, babies, women, old men, all of them dead. I ask him what he felt like when he was sitting on the plane with his family leaving Syria. I felt like my heart was outside of my body, he says. I'm very sad. Every day I feel like I've died a hundred times. Everybody let us down. Arabs, Europeans, and Americans, all of them let us down. At this point, he begins to cry. He says he feels lost. Back home, there are people that can't afford to buy food. I feel ashamed and guilty that I'm coming to buy things here now. And there are people who can't afford to buy food. Every day, we weep. My wife and the kids. Every day, we weep. That baby? That baby. That baby. It's Shadi. Before I leave El Shami restaurant, Ahmed pulls out his cell phone. He has something to show me. A picture of his baby, Shadi, three months old. He's part Egyptian, I say, because he was born here in Cairo. Ahmed corrects me. He's 100% Syrian. For the world, I'm Julia Simon, Cairo. Did you see this video, the one of astronaut Chris Hadfield in orbit singing a cover of David Bowie's Space Oddity? You can see it at theworld.org. Now, here are a few more facts to consider about Hadfield. He's on his way back after five months at the helm of the International Space Station. He's also the first Canadian to command the mission so far. And he's been documenting his time in space via social media. That includes posting videos of the more mundane aspects of life in space. Brush my teeth, just like normal. Get them all. Especially the ones in the back. You should brush your teeth for about as long as you can sing Happy Birthday. That should be long enough. Okay, so now what am I going to do? I've got a mouthful of toothpaste stuff. So what I do is I just swallow the toothpaste. That's how you brush your teeth in space. And all this time, I thought you're not supposed to swallow your toothpaste. Well, we reached out to Chris Hadfield's unofficial social media manager, Evan Hadfield. That's his son. Evan, uh, we just heard your dad brushing his teeth. Uh, he also has shown viewers how to cut hair in zero gravity, how to exercise, how to make peanut butter sandwiches in zero gravity. Very entertaining. If this astronaut thing doesn't work out, he could be an entertainer. Uh, I gather that the idea for your dad's social media campaign started over the kitchen table. Explain that. It sort of developed from a family dinner where we were discussing what dad could do to get people interested in seeing what behind-the-scenes astronaut life is like. And he really wanted people to be able to get that connection to him. Evan, I heard this amazing statistic that, Chris, your dad is one of three astronauts in the entire Canadian Space Agency. There's three astronauts currently, uh, him, Jeremy Hansen, and David St. Jacques. But 
that's because a lot have recently retired and we're hiring new classes to come in, so it's sort of a transition period. Mm, but the CSA has experienced also a 10% across-the-board budget cut uh, this last year. Are you hoping that the buzz that you're generating from uh, social media will raise interest in the space station and the Canadian Space Agency? If the public forgets that we're going to space, if they forget the reasons we're going to space and they think that it becomes either commonplace or unnecessary, then we lose our space program. And I think that's an absolute shame considering all it's given us. And what do you say to the naysayers who believe that money should be kept down here on Earth? Well, do they like cordless power drills? Those were invented for the space program. Mm. Your personal computer wouldn't exist without the investment in the space program. There's an unbelievable amount of things that you're using in your day-to-day life that wouldn't exist without the space program. So your dad lands back on Earth tomorrow in Kazakhstan. He's been in space for a year. What has he told you he's looking forward to the most coming back to Earth now? <laughs> he keeps switching it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a hot shower. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, in, in space, you sponge bathe, and uh, sponge baths are not satisfying. Growing up with a dad who's an astronaut, what kind of conversations happen at the kitchen table? Probably less exciting ones than you'd imagine. Don't let but, me down. Get, what, what was the most exciting moment around the kitchen oh, table? I, I wish it were more exciting, honestly. <laughs> <I'm> a, <laughs> when he gets home, he's just dad. He's just a guy. He's got to go to the bathroom and, and eat food, too. So Yeah, but you must have known before all the other kids in your class how to brush your teeth in zero gravity. Yes, I definitely figured that one out quite early. <laughs> Let's get back to your dad's rendition of uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity. I mean, it's really entertaining. Who was the talented astronaut on board who shot the multiple angles for this video? I believe it was a little tripod or his arm carrying it. Usually they don't have two astronauts uh, doing one shoot just because... Because you want it. (laughs) Yeah, my requests don't go through that way. (laughs) Evan Hatfield, son of Canadian astronaut Chris Hatfield, one of the coolest dads in this galaxy. Chris Hatfield returns to Earth tomorrow, landing in Kazakhstan. Evan, great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grave. Still to come, that dark and dank space you're in may be the mouth of a hippo. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. All this year, we're following the lives of students at a public high school in Cape Town, South Africa. It's called the Center of Science and Technology, COSAT for short, and is located in the township of Kailicha, a place where crime and poverty are high. Students there face many challenges to getting an education. One is simply getting to school safely. The world's Anders Kelto has our story. At 8 o'clock on a recent Wednesday morning, a student named Lapema arrived at COSAT in pretty bad shape. His right eye was swollen shut. That boy came to me. He said as he walked to school, a young man approached him and demanded his cell phone. Then I said, I don't have it. But they forced me. The man sprayed him in the face with pepper spray. Dr. Siri must go immediately. I'm just going to pull my card. The principal rushed Lapema to the hospital. He was okay but clearly shaken up. 
This kind of incident is common at COSAT. Later that day, the school's principal, Fadila Cooper, said students face serious problems when they travel to school. They deal with violence, they deal with crime almost every day. In fact, the school recently polled students and found that nearly half have been robbed or assaulted on the way to or from school. Part of the problem is transportation. In South Africa, there are no public school buses. Some kids can afford to take a train or a shared van, but many are left to walk, often long distances. I wanted to see what hazards students face and how they negotiate them. So I asked a junior named Lucano if I could accompany him on his morning walk. I meet up with him at his home, a three-room metal shack down a narrow dirt alley. A single light bulb illuminates the house. Lucanio wakes up at six each morning. He puts on his blue school sweater and tie and polishes his black dress shoes. After brushing his teeth, he grabs his backpack and steps out the door. His neighborhood is a vast area of shacks and dirt roads. Stray dogs wander past. It's the kind of place many would feel unsafe. But Lucanio feels the opposite. Yes, I feel safe because this is where I belong. And I know everyone who stays here. So you, you don't feel scared when you're right near your house? No, 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 I don't. To get to school, Lucanio walks two and a quarter miles through open fields and gang territories and past areas where petty thieves hang out. Lucanio says he's an easy target for robbers because of what he's wearing, a school uniform. So they usually know that some of the children sometimes carry phones to schools and they have money for lunch. Lucanio exits his neighborhood and links up with a paved road. Cars and trucks pass by and school kids move along the sidewalk. He walks past a barber shop and a fruit market. Both are closed at this early hour. Then, a few hundred yards up the road, he approaches a large open field. It's littered with trash. On the right is a barbed wire fence. On the left, brick houses. Just off the trail lies a dead dog. Lucanio is noticeably worried. This is where I feel scared. Here in this open field? Yes, and then I don't know many people so much, so that's why I feel scared. In Kailicha, people rarely get attacked in their own neighborhoods. If they do, neighbors intervene. But in other areas, bystanders often do nothing. Lucanio says he doubts anyone here would help him. They will just remain indoors and watch by windows, so it won't help you. Theoretically, the police should protect students at places like this. But in Kailicha, there are very few police officers, just a quarter of the national average. And Lucanio says cops here don't do their job. Students at COSAT aren't the only ones frustrated with the police. Their parents recently staged a protest at the local police station, demanding that something be done to protect their kids. But so far, little has changed. Parents have even considered patrolling the streets themselves. But Nolundi Jaquana, whose daughter is a ninth grader at COSAT, says that strategy is dangerous. She says it was tried at another school, and parents were targeted by gangs. They would come and attack their families and things like that. So some parents have now proposed another idea for how to keep their kids safe. Tembisa Laketwana has a daughter at COSAT. We approached the taxi drivers. We said if they ever see gangs attacking students on the roads, they should give the gangsters a serious beating. 
Taxi drivers are a large and powerful group in Kailicha. Many are from tough backgrounds, and some carry guns. Several COSAT parents told me they're the only people that gangsters and robbers fear. That's why parents have asked them to act as vigilante law enforcers. Back on his walk, Lucano says a pair of taxi drivers recently rescued him. He stops in front of a small store. On a cement wall, there's a gang name sprayed in graffiti. Lucano says he was attacked right here by a gang of boys just a few weeks ago. They came at him with knives. So that's when I started like running. And then there, actually there was a car passing here, which is the one I entered. He jumped into a taxi. The driver and his assistant chased the gangsters away. Now, whenever Lucanio passes through here, he keeps his eye out for the nearest taxi. And if he sees a group of boys, he crosses the street. A half mile up the road, Lucanio enters a quiet neighborhood. He walks along the edge of a sandy field and bumps into a few classmates. He says at this point in his walk, he feels relieved. I feel safe because I'm just near the gate of the school, which is where I will feel protected. You feel protected once you're inside the gate? Yes, exactly. Because I know nothing could happen inside the school. Inside, I ask Lucanio why he keeps risking his safety to come to COSAT. He could go to a less prestigious high school, much closer to his home. But he says he doesn't feel he has a choice. Because I want to become something, like I want something in future. So every day, he weighs his hopes for the future against his safety in the present. And every day, he chooses to walk to this school. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto in Cape Town. A tough dilemma for those school kids, for sure. You can see the spot where Lucano narrowly escaped attack and the other, other challenges he faces on his way to school. He's narrated a slideshow for us. It's at theworld.org. Today's GeoQuiz takes an unexpected turn. One moment, the tour guide you're about to hear is paddling down a river in southern Africa. Next thing he knows, well, here's how he describes it. It had started off as just another beautiful day in Africa, just above Victoria Falls. And um, I was leading a canoe safari, and things had been going rather well until all of a sudden there was a huge whack behind me. I turned just in time to see a hippopotamus. We'll find out what happened next in that close encounter with a two-ton hippo in a few minutes. First, though, we want you to name that river. It's the source of Victoria Falls, a thundering waterfall that's more than twice as high as Niagara Falls, by the way. This river in southern Africa partly forms the border between Zambia and Zimbabwe. Hear the tale that guide lived to tell when we return with the answer. This is The World on Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, how a New Yorker turned herself into the world's leading expert on a mysterious ancient script. Sitting at her dining table in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn at night, poring over the few published inscriptions, looking and looking for patterns of repeated symbols in the script. 
PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic Philanthropy, acknowledging the work of Women Heart and celebrating its newest Wenger Award recipients who are making extraordinary contributions in the heart health field. More at womenheart.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Nawaz Sharif, the man who will most likely be Pakistan's next prime minister, says he has two priorities, boosting his country's economy and bringing peace to Pakistan. The United States may want to pay close attention to that second point and how Sharif may impact the fight against terrorism. Nawaz Sharif's party looks set to claim victory in Pakistan's parliamentary elections this weekend, and he's been in power before. Sharif served as prime minister twice in the 1990s before he was ousted in a military coup and forced into exile in Saudi Arabia. Journalist Binish Ahmed is in Islamabad. Uh, so he last held power in Pakistan in 1999, Binish. Give us the before and after shot. What was Nawaz Sharif's reputation after his two terms as prime minister, and what are the expectations of him now? Nawaz Sharif has had a rather patchy reputation. He's been seen as someone who is not really a coalition builder and someone who is very independently minded. It was during his tenure that Pakistan first tested its nuclear weapons. And of course, that was not looked upon very favorably by the U.S. and caused Pakistan to incur steep sanctions. So he is sort of a wild card individual. So there's been so many questions in the last 24 hours what this could mean for the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. has a kind of a bad relationship with Pakistan right now. I think that's still really unclear. While on the campaign trail, Nawaz Sharif made a number of rather acrimonious statements towards the United States. He said that he would seek to negotiate with the Taliban and even hinted at ending Pakistan's part in the U.S.-led war on terror. Since then, he sort of changed his stance. He came out today as saying that he would offer full support to the United States in its drawdown from Afghanistan and would be willing to offer Pakistani roads and ports to help Americans send troops and supplies home. What did he mean by negotiate with the Taliban? He took a rather soft stance on ending militancy here because he likely knew that it would make it harder for him to campaign would he not make those sorts of concessions. We know that the three parties who took harder stances on the Taliban were attacked and shot down and even kidnapped. So I think Nawaz Sharif may have foreseen some of these kinds of assaults and therefore been kind of shrewd by saying that he would not be as tough on the Taliban. But what he meant by that, to what extent he's willing to root out militancy in his term in office is unclear. And what about his relationship to Pakistan's military? You know, he was pushed out uh, of, of office the last time in a coup. What does that tell us about his ability to rein in extremism in Pakistan? Nawaz Sharif has had a rather hostile relationship with the military in the past. Uh, Of course, that may change a little bit now that General Pervez Musharraf, who ousted him, is now out of the picture. But the fact remains that in Pakistan, the foreign policy is largely set by the military. And Pakistan will have a new top general in just a few months here. So I think he'll be starting on new footing because, of course, he's learned that It's not good to ruffle feathers with the military in Pakistan.
So Nawaz Sharif has gotten a majority of the vote. Uh, does that necessarily mean he can easily get things done now in Pakistan? I mean, what is the average Pakistani expecting from this politician who, you know, also happens to be a multimillionaire? I think there are big expectations for Nawaz Sharif. He has set those expectations himself by saying that he would really improve things in Pakistan in terms of infrastructure and in terms of the economy, in terms of creating jobs. Uh, Pakistan is at a point where there are up to 12 hours of power outages a day where there's widespread disease just because of a lack of clean water. I think that he's off to a decent start, having won a sizable number of seats in the National Assembly. And I should also mention that the Karachi Stock Exchange soared to a record high number today. Mm. So it sort of goes to show that business people and investors are interested in what Nawaz Sharif has to offer. Encouraging, but it sounds like he's got a long road ahead of him. Beenish Ahmed, thank you very much. Thank you. It's time now for a detective story. In 1900, a wealthy British archaeologist named Arthur Evans went digging on the Mediterranean island of Crete. He excavated the ruins of Knossos and found a palace he took to be the home of King Minos. Evans also found a series of clay tablets, which recorded Europe's earliest known writing, dating back three and a half thousand years. Arthur Evans called the written script Linear B, but no one knew what it meant. The world's Alex Galifant picks up the story from there. Linear B features an array of mysterious symbols constructed out of simple lines. Marguerite Fox is the author of a new book, The Riddle of the Labyrinth, and the riddle was as hard as they come. You have no idea what this script is or what the tablets say. In addition, you have no idea even what language the script is used to record. So you have the ultimate intellectual locked room mystery, an unknown script writing an unknown language. So how do you ever find your way into a seemingly closed system like that? A solution took more than half a century to arrive. There's now a better chance of reading these earliest European inscriptions than ever before. In 1952, a young British architect named Michael Ventris did excavate the meaning of Linear B. That was him talking on BBC Radio in the wake of his triumph. Ventris fit the model of a solitary, tortured genius, so much so that the decipherment of Linear B has often been portrayed as principally his accomplishment alone. But, says author Marguerite Fox, Ventris built his success on a foundation laid by an American, Alice Koba. As is so often the case in women's history, behind this great achievement lay these hours and hours of unseen labor by this unheralded woman. We'll meet Alice Koba in a moment, but first consider the scale of the challenge Linear B posed. The script was unknown, the language it recorded was unknown, and there was no equivalent to the Rosetta Stone, the bilingual slab that paved the way for the decipherment of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. None ever surfaced, nor has one been found to this day. Without such a key, it would take persistent analysis to unpick the door to this locked room. Step back for a moment and think about the symbols that make up a page of text. All a writing system is, really, is a graphic map. In English, say, a hollow round circle maps the sound O. That's it. 
Every writing system, explains Marguerite Fox, uses one of three systems or a combination. There is the logographic system. The best-known example is Chinese, where a whole character stands for a whole word. Next comes the syllabic system, used to write, for instance, Japanese, where a character stands for a syllable like ma or ba. And then finally, familiar to us as English speakers, is the alphabet, where character stands usually just for a single sound. It's really clear cut, but that's the general idea. Linear B was very likely a syllabic script. There were about eighty different symbols, right in the range you'd expect, and there were a few pictographs dotted about horses and pots. It seemed that the tablets recorded the domestic affairs of the palace, but for thirty years, not much more was known than that, until Alice Cober came along. In the 1930s and 40s, Cober was an assistant professor at Brooklyn College in New York. She taught a full load of classes in Latin and Greek. She lived with her widowed mother, and there's no record in her papers of a social or romantic life of any kind. Instead, for almost two decades, Alice Cober pursued the decipherment of this mysterious Bronze Age script. She turned herself into the world's leading expert on Linear B. It was she who was working hundreds of hours with a slide rule, literally sitting at her dining table in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn at night after her papers were graded. Cigarette burning at her elbow, poring over the few published inscriptions, looking and looking for patterns of repeated symbols in the script. Marguerite Fox says Cober adopted a philosophy of form without meaning. She wouldn't make guesses, and she wouldn't ascribe speculative sound values to symbols. Instead, she set out to record the frequency of every symbol or character in the tablets. And then the frequency of every character in each position in the word: initial position, final position, medial, second, next to last, and as if that weren't enough, the frequency of every character in juxtaposition to that of every other character. During the years surrounding the Second World War, writing materials were hard to come by, so Cober recorded her detailed analysis on handmade index cards. The backs of old greeting cards, the insides of covers of examination blue books. She stole a lot of checkout slips from the Brooklyn College Library, and all of these she painstakingly cut with scissors one at a time till she had something like a hundred and eighty thousand cards that she had hand cut. Her monumental effort paid off. Alice Cober spotted groups of symbols that appeared throughout the inscriptions, groups that would start the same but end in consistently different ways. That was the breakthrough. Cober now knew that Linear B was an inflected language with word endings that shifted according to use. In English, for instance, you get words like sing, singer, and singing. Remember, Linear B is syllabic. Each symbol contains a consonant and a vowel, like t or mi or ni. Some symbols would start or end the same way; they'd share a consonant or a vowel. Now we know that t, mi, and ni are sounds in Linear B, but Cobert was able to plot the relationships between symbols on a grid before any of the sounds were known. Alice Cobert was on the verge of deciphering Linear B, but before she could add sounds to her grid of symbols. She fell ill and died. It was 1950. Cobo was 43. Still, she left behind a sturdy bridge for others to cross. And in 1952, Michael Venturis did. It's rather like doing a crossword puzzle, on which the positions of the black squares haven't been printed for you. 
Ventress built out Koba's grids as much as possible, and then added his own brilliance to the mix. He wondered about the repeated groups of symbols identified by Koba as evidence of inflection. What if they stood for the names of towns in Crete? What if they worked the same way as, say, the words Brooklyn and Brooklynite? Place names are exactly the kinds of things you'd expect to crop up all the time, especially on official palace documents. And place names often don't change much, even after centuries. A town such as Knossos, say, or in the syllabic form of Linear B, Ko-no-so. The script began to talk. With a few names, Ventress could now add sounds to the grids of symbols begun by Alice Koba. That allowed him to sound out other words in the inscriptions. Linear B, it turned out, was a form of ancient Greek. No one knew that Greek speakers even existed that far back, so it barely crossed anyone's mind that the script could be Greek. And even if Greek speakers had existed that far back, the thinking went that without the Greek alphabet, which was centuries in the future, they would have had no way to write their language down. So Greek was ruled out as a possibility very, very early. The cracking of Linear B transformed that understanding. The theory now is that colonizing Greeks arrived on Crete from the mainland and appropriated an indigenous writing system to record their own language. That's Linear B. As for that older Cretan writing system, well, some of that was found at Knossos too. It's called Linear A. But there's very little of it. Too little to allow a decipherment. So far. For the world. I'm Alex Galifant. For more stories on languages old and new, check out our podcast, The World in Words. You can find it at theworld.org slash language. Our geo-quiz today may have left you in the lurch on a river in southern Africa. Here's the rest of that story now, and it takes place on the Zambezi River. River guide Paul Templer says he'll never forget what happened to him on the Zambezi 17 years ago. As he told the BBC, he was on the river paddling canoes along with three other apprentice guides. I was leading a canoe safari, and things had been going rather well until all of a sudden there was a huge thwack behind me. I turned just in time to see one of the canoes in our armada getting attacked by a hippopotamus. Unfortunately, one of my guides in the back of that canoe got thrown out of the canoe into the river. And so my job was to go and get him out. A rescue sounds like a very courageous thing to attempt, since man versus hippo is not what you might call a fair matchup. But Templer was focused on pulling his fellow guide out of the water. That almost happened. I was leaning over to grab a hold of him when the hippo burst up between the water between us and plucked me cleanly out of my canoe. So there he was, trapped in a hippo's mouth in the middle of the Zambezi River, and hippo jaws are strong enough to snap a human in half. It happened so fast. The first thing I knew, I was in this this kind of dank, dark place, and there was this pressure crushing down on my lower back. I could feel the water around my legs, and I'm about six foot, so you can fit half a six-foot man waist first down a hippo's throat. The attack lasted over three minutes, all the while Templar was in the animal's mouth, suffering serious bite wounds and being thrashed about in and out of the water. Templar remembers frantically freeing one of his arms and feeling the whiskers of the hippo's snout. In the midst of this, I guess with the adrenaline coursing, everything slowed down. So when we went underwater, 
I would hold my breath. And when we were on the surface, I'd suck in air. And all the while, I figured out that if I held on to the tusks that were boring into me, that my flesh wouldn't tear so much when he shook me about. At one point, he did spit me out far enough that one of the chaps on our trip, a guide who I knew quite well, Mike, just showed exceptional bravery. And he paddled in and I was able to grab a hold of his boat and he dragged me out. Wow. To make a long story short, Paul Templer was swallowed by a two-ton hippo and lived to tell the tale. He did lose his mangled left arm in the hippo attack, but time seemed to heal the mental trauma, at least. And somehow the attack has inspired Templer in the years since. He's gone on to work on behalf of terminally ill children and amputees. Templer is now based here in the U.S., but the event that changed his life took place in Africa on the Zambezi River, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Next, a short list for Iran's presidential candidates on PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Get out your handicappers form. You'll need one to keep track of who's running in Iran's presidential election next month. Over the weekend, there were some surprise additions to the list of candidates. Former President Ali Akbar Rafsanjani added his name just minutes before the registration deadline. And another surprise, current President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad accompanied his former chief of staff to register for the June 14th elections. The president himself is not running since Iran's constitution bars him from seeking a third term in office. Journalist Shirin Jafari joins us now. She's been helping us get a good grip on the electoral process in Iran. Shirin, first of all, President Ahmadinejad merely walking his former chief of staff to the candidate registration office. Why is that put him in hot water? Obviously, you know, being president himself, this is not uh, something that he should do legally. Rahim Mashai, his chief of staff, is a really controversial figure. And Ahmadinejad supporting him so openly has uh, caused for some people to be so angry and talk about this a lot. I mean, given how uh, controversial uh, the former chief of staff is, uh, why would Ahmadinejad do this, especially since legally you can't endorse uh, a candidate while you're president? Well, Ahmadinejad has showed his support for Mashai for a long time. Now, the reason behind that, you know, Mashai does have family tie to Ahmadinejad. His daughter is married to Ahmadinejad's son, so there's a relationship there too. And also, it's just Ahmadinejad has been supporting him all the way. And why is Mashai so controversial in Iran? Well, he has said some things, such as he's supporting the, Iran's relationship with the West. He is seen as somebody who doesn't support the Islamic thought. Now, the last time we spoke, Shireen, uh, you suggested that if Ali Akbar Rafsanjani, the former president, uh, ran, it could be significant. A lot of Iranians were waiting anxiously to see if he would. Now he's announced he would run. He ran against Ahmadinejad in the disputed 2009 election. Why is this important? You know, after Rafsanjani signed up, the social media lit up. Also, we saw him in the front page of all the newspapers uh, on Saturday morning in Tehran's newspaper. You know, his running in this election is really important because, uh, first of all, he is seen as somebody who can change the economic situation. He can talk to the West and alleviate some of the tensions between the West. He's also a really complex figure. He's a wealthy man. He's he's a businessman. He's made Mm. money during his uh, time as president. Also, at the same time, he's somebody who has gone between the reformist camp and also the conservative camp at the same time. So he's seen as somebody who goes between camps. There's a lot of um, divide between factions right now. So some people are hopeful. 
others see this as somehow, you know, the same as past somebody who's from the past. He's 79 years old. So he's seen as somebody who has been in the scene for so long. Um, but others see this as somehow a hope for economic change. Shirin, just talk us through uh, the, the whole process. These men have registered to be a presidential candidate, but it doesn't mean they'll be on the ballot when Election Day comes? Right. So right now, about 700 people have signed up. Almost 40 people are well-known political figures. Now, the Guardian Council has to do a background check on these people, see if they're you know fit to run for presidency, and they would come up with a final list in almost 10 days now. This final list would be the people who, who would be running and the campaigning would start from that time. Journalist Shirin Jafari has been regularly unpacking Iranian politics for the world. Shirin, we'll check in with you again soon. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Marco. Finally today, we remember the great Cuban composer Cesar Portillo de la Luz. He died in Havana earlier this month at the age of 90. Beto Arcos offers this appreciation. The first time I heard the songs of Cesar Portillo de la Luz was back in the early 1970s, when my father would tune into one of his favorite radio shows, Trios Famosos. We'd hear songs like Realidad y Fantasía, recorded by the legendary Mexican trio Los Tres Aces. When I was a little older, in my teens, I learned to play the guitar. Now, as a rule, when you play guitar in Mexico, you learn how to play romantic ballads, boleros, if you want to serenade a girlfriend, that is. I tried to learn the song Contigo en la Distancia, but I just couldn't memorize the chords. Years later, I found out it wasn't just any standard. It was written by César Portillo de la Luz, one of the most important figures of the Cuban style of music known as feeling. Take a listen to his most famous composition, sung here by the man himself, and pay close attention to his guitar playing. No existe un momento del día en que pueda apartarte de mí. The complexity of the chord changes is the reason it was so hard for me to learn the song. And that complexity is an essential part of the feeling style. It took Cuba by storm in the late 1940s. Portillo de la Luz was one of the founders, along with José Antonio Méndez, Tania Castellanos, and others. They were profoundly influenced by American jazz, including bebop, as well as composers such as George and Ira Gershwin. Perhaps no other song expressed the complexity and the beauty of this style more than Portillo de la Luz's song, Tu Mi Delirio. Here's a soulful version by the vocal ensemble Cuarteto Daida, featuring a young Omara Portuondo, whom you might know from the Buenavista Social Club. Como 
Portillo de la Luz's songs have been recorded by a who's who of popular singers around the world, including Nat King Cole, Plácido Domingo, Caetano Veloso, and Jose Feliciano. As for me, I'm still trying to learn Contigo en la Distancia. No existe un momento del día. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos. En que pueda apartarme de ti. Ya todo parece distinto. Cuando no estás junto a mí. Wonderful. That's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Follow us when we're not on the radio on Twitter. We tweet at PRI The World. I tweet at Marco Werman. And as always, thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.